So today in our passage, um, in our passages, Jesus, he continues to teach on the kingdom. He begins with a concept of humility and then uses the parables to also highlight the excuses that will prevent some from accepting his invitation to the kingdom and we finish on the cost of being a disciple. So the parables follow on from last week where Jesus is a guest of the Pharisees at a meal. If you remember from last week, he healed someone, sent him away, didn't want him to be part of the, 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 you know, the, the, the show that the Pharisees were trying to put on. Um, but then he gives a parable to those at the dinner table, the Pharisees predominantly. He gives them a lesson on the importance of humility. And by identifying it as a parable, Luke wants us to know that this lesson has importance for our relationship to God, not just how we relate to other people. And Jesus gave the parable originally to correct the pride of the Pharisees. So, customarily, <clears throat> um, people at meals like this reclined on low couches for, for important meals, resting on their left sides. Um, so, you know the picture that we have of the, the, the table with Jesus and the twelve? They're all sitting in chairs. Mm -mm -mm. That's not how they did it. They actually were on almost like cushions, basically lying on the ground on their left with a low table in front of them. And it was in a U-shape. And in where they were positioned around this table in a U-shape determined their importance. So, in a typical U-shape arrangement, the host was at the bottom of the U, and so the closer you were to the host was the higher importance that you are, and as you came up the U, you became less important. So the closer you were to the host was the higher your status was. And Jesus' guests, his fellow guests, had tried to get the places closest to their host that implied their own importance. And his teaching then focuses on being invited. The Pharisees, uh, sorry, the meal in the Pharisees' house wasn't a wedding feast, but Jesus used that type of banquet in his parable because he was speaking of the messianic banquet at the beginning of the kingdom, <clears throat> where then Israel would unite with her Messiah. And his point was that the Jews who were present at that meal with him there should learn a spiritual lesson about the kingdom from this simple social situation that he described. Everyone realised that seeking a prominent place for themselves at a banquet could lead to them being embarrassed if the host said, no, 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 you go down there, there's someone more important than you. And so Jesus' hearers were to learn from this, not to seek prominence for themselves, but to humble themselves. And in relation to the kingdom, this meant being willing to forgo their present prominence, prestige and power, which the Pharisees so desired, and instead humble themselves 
by associating with Jesus as a disciple. The implication was that those who humbled themselves now would experience exaltation by God in the kingdom when it began. And the reason we should humble ourselves is that someone else has invited us. We are the guest, not the host. God is the exalted host and our position in the kingdom depends on God, not on our own self-seeking. He is the crux of the teaching. Self-exaltation leads to humiliation, whereas humility results in exaltation. The principle operates in the present and the future. It operates in social situations and in kingdom situations. The parable was a lesson for the Pharisees especially, but also for all of Jesus' disciples and everyone else present on the importance of humility. Participants in the kingdom and honoured guests in the kingdom would be those who humbled themselves by following Jesus. So I have a question for you. How are you going at humility? It can be a tricky one. Because we might think that we're doing well at this, but it's only when tested does our true nature reveal itself. Sometimes it's only when we move out of our comfort zones of convenience do we get the opportunity to explore our humility in action. And sometimes it can rear its head in strange ways. On a visit to the Beethoven Museum in Bonn, a young American student became fascinated by the piano on which Beethoven had composed some of his greatest works. She asked the museum guard if she could play a few bars on it and accompanied the request with a lavish tip. And so the guard agreed. The girl went to the piano and tinkled out the opening of the Moonlight Sonata. As she was leaving, she said to the guard, I suppose all the great pianists who come here want to play on that piano. The guard shook his head and said, Podrevsky, the famous Polish pianist, I probably pronounced his name wrong, said he was here a few years ago and said he wasn't worthy to touch it. Humility. It's not just that you think you're better than someone else. Humility is an attitude we would do well to adopt as a general standing in life, humbly approaching any circumstances before us, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, but approaching life with humility and thanksgiving. Jesus then directed his teaching particularly to his host. And he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or rich neighbours, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. For when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so the principle that Jesus commended to his host for selecting guests is one that God had used in inviting people to the Messianic banquet, inviting those who could not 
repay the favor resulted in greater glory of the host. It's true on earth and it's true in heaven. If earthly hosts behave as the heavenly host, that behavior then would demonstrate true righteousness. This is the message trying to get through to the Pharisee and God would reward it, true righteousness. Otherwise, they'd only receive the temporal reward of their guests saying, thank you very much, you've done well, be blessed, right? And so this, this lesson was really there to vindicate Jesus' ministry to the have-nots and explain why he didn't cater to the haves. It also had indirectly appealed to the Pharisees to receive Jesus' invitation to believe on him and be blessed for doing so. So Jesus had taught the importance of humbling themselves and now he invites them to humble himself, themselves so that they could then participate in the coming kingdom and he gives warning to those who reject his invitation. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So this guest who voiced this comment appears to have understood that Jesus had been talking about the kingdom and that he would be one of those blessed people referred to. So he, he's on team Jesus, if you like. He's, he's not on team Pharisee. But Jesus said to him, a man once gave a great banquet, invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who invited, come for everything is now ready. So in this parable, the host responds to God and the servant is Jesus and the people invited were the Jews primarily. In Jesus' day, a banquet took a long time to prepare and likewise, God had been preparing his messianic banquet for centuries. Jesus goes on in verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. And I've got to go and see it. Please excuse me. Then another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I've got to go and have a look at them. So can I be excused? Another one said, look, I've married a wife and so I can't come on, be too busy. And so those invited, they refused to participate. They tried to excuse themselves by giving acceptable reasons for not attending the banquet. And the three excuses that Jesus cited they're only representative of the many others that the other invited guests would have no un undoubtedly given. One man excused himself from the ground that he recently become a property owner and so some of his real estate and, and, and he needed to go and attend to, attend to it. He was proud of his position as a landowner in the community. Another person with new possessions expressed his great interest in them rather than the invitation. And the fact that both of these men inspected their purchases after they'd bought them shows that their love for their purchases was undoubtedly more so than what this invitation meant to them. But they would have inspected them before they bought them anyway. So it's sort of like a bit of a, like a weak excuse, if you like. And then the third, third man, was his marriage was his excuse, implying that he was that that pleasure was more important to him. So, these individuals represent the many who had declined to accept Jesus' gospel invitation for similar reasons. 
They decided they were too busy with property, possessions and pleasure to accept the invitation of Jesus. So the servant came, reported these things to his master. The master of the house became angry. He said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done and still there is room. So you can understand this host is legitimately angry in view of his gracious invitation and sacrificial preparations. And rejecting an invitation like this, it was a personal insult to the host. And so he decided to open the banquet to anyone who would come, not just the people who considered themselves the privileged few who were the most obvious choices. The privileged few correspond to the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The other people the host then included correspond to people whom the self-righteous Jews considered deficient or less than them, people lower than them. So this was like, you know, publicans and sinners and, and, and Gentiles and all of us, pretty much. Um, and then even the most needy, were responded to and there was still plenty of room at the banquet and so the invitation goes out to the streets who carried all manner of people and the lanes and the alleys where the lower elements of society felt more comfortable. The servant's commission was urgent because the feast waited for guests and the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So this host tells his servant, go further out to the countryside, find guests wherever he could. Those taking refuge against the hedges, fences and walls would have been the especially destitute and needy in that culture. And, and when he said compel them, I mean, really, I don't think much compulsion would have been required to come to a feast if you're one of the people who's, you know, the poor and, the, and the, the outcast of society. And so these people, they represent the remainder of humankind living far from the side of the great banquet, living far from Jerusalem, if you like. They are the spiritually needy, Jews and Gentiles alike, both in Jesus' day and the ages that follow, before the banquet begins at the commencement of the millennium. None of those who received initial invitations but declined the host's gracious offer would enjoy the banquet. And that is true. People who do not, people who decline Jesus' invitation will not enjoy the banquet. But yet Jesus still makes that gracious invitation to each one of us today but that invitation it needs to be accepted just being invited isn't enough to save us just getting an invitation doesn't mean you get all the benefits just like if you get an invitation to a party you only get the blessing of the party if you go if you accept the invitation if you take action on that invitation so what does it look like 
for us to join Jesus at his banquet. Well, it looks like practicing the ways of Jesus, being transformed by him in all areas of our lives as he leads and guides through his Holy Spirit. It means we actively come to church to learn and grow, fellowship together, pray together, break bread together. Small groups are another great place for that. When we serve Jesus, we minister to others, we share with others the hope that we have in Christ. This is what it looks like to join Jesus at his banquet, to accept that invitation. You see, the parable would have helped Jesus' original disciples appreciate their privilege and the urgency of their mission. Likewise, Luke's original readers and all the subsequent disciples were included, we should learn the same lesson. There's revelation here of God's program through the church that Israel's rejection of her Messiah and God's consequent postponement of the kingdom made necessary. That that rolls now to us. So, So I guess the question is, who are you in this parable? Are you someone who rejects the invitation because you're too busy with everything going on in your life, too busy with property, too busy with possessions, too busy with pleasure? What excuses are you making to not accept the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers and be transformed by Jesus? What excuses are you making to yourself and to your family for not engaging in what God is calling you to do? Or are you the humble person who recognizes that you need the salvation that Jesus is offering and gratefully accept his invitation? Are you one of those ones from the surrounding area that the servant has come to to bring in? You know, if you've never done that before, if you've never accepted the invitation of Jesus, then can I ask, why not? What is stopping you today from becoming a guest at his banquet? What is stopping you today from saying yes to his invitation to eternal life with him in his kingdom? There's nothing that you have done that can exclude you from his gift of salvation for those who believe. You cannot outsin the grace of God. Whatever is in your past that doesn't prevent Jesus from redeeming your future. He's already paid the price for you and it cost him his life. But you are worth it. And he loves you and he wants you to know that. He wants you to feel that. He wants you to see that. But I don't want you to go into this without the full knowledge of what it costs to be a disciple of Christ and neither does Jesus. Though salvation is free, discipleship is costly. See, salvation guarantees heaven, but it also calls for complete commitment to Jesus, not to secure heaven, but to express gratitude for heaven. Verse 25, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? But we've moved on from this meal now and Jesus is heading again on the road to Jerusalem. 
And a great multitude accompanied him and heard this teaching. Now, curiosity is one thing. Many people are curious about Jesus, but discipleship's another. There are many people who are accompanying Jesus who are not really following him in the sense of learning from him. They simply wanted to benefit from his ministry, but weren't disciples. They weren't apprentices of Jesus. That's what what happens with large groups of, of people. You know, not everyone that comes along to church is a disciple of Jesus. They might have come for community, the warmth and friendship, yet never take that step of faith and accept the invitation of Jesus. And obviously, following Jesus is this great crowd, and in that great crowd, there were many people who just wanted to be part of something spectacular. And Jesus mentioned two qualifications for being his disciple. First, you must be willing to give up your primary allegiance to family and self. It's a strange turn of phrase that Jesus use, uses here to, to make this point. Hating your father and mother and, and taking up your cross. What on earth does he mean? Because elsewhere, Jesus has taught his disciples to love their enemies rather than hating them. He's not contravening the teaching of the fifth commandment either because he also spoke positive about loving yourself as well. So what does he mean when he says hate? Well, I think it's relative here rather than absolute. He meant that we must be willing to give up our allegiances to those closest to ourselves and even to ourselves to follow him. We must be prepared to be all in for Jesus. Give it all up for him. Hold nothing back. If your parents are stopping you from worshipping Jesus or serving Jesus or becoming more like Jesus, then your allegiance to Jesus must override your allegiance to them. Likewise, if your own aspirations and goals in your life prevent you or sidetrack you from worshipping Jesus or serving Jesus or becoming more like Jesus, then it's time to give them up. And sometimes those can be good things, but not the best thing. Things like careers, recreations and hobbies, demands placed on us by our families, volunteering in community organisations, all these things are good things. But if they prevent you or sidetrack you from worshipping Jesus or serving Jesus or becoming more like Jesus, then it's time to give them up or, or change how you prioritise and engage in those things in your life. It's all about sacrifice. Sacrificing our own personal ambitions, ideas and priorities to Jesus. Instead, following Him and His direction. Your will be done, not my will. Warren Wearsby puts it like this, Salvation is open to all who will come by faith, while discipleship is for believers willing to pay a price. Salvation means coming to the cross and trusting Jesus Christ, while discipleship means carrying the cross and following Jesus. Coming to the point of salvation is the first step. The rest of your life are the other steps of paying the price, of sacrifice, of carrying our cross. It's the second thing 
he says, is that a disciple must bear the burden of public identification with Jesus, even to death, if necessary. So, when it comes to identifying where your allegiances lie, you are happy regardless of whatever situation to always declare it to be Jesus, regardless of what that might cost you. Some workplaces might be particularly hostile to Christians. But identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, in all circumstances, in all situations, is one of the costs Jesus is asking us to pay. And that sometimes carries consequences. He told another parable. His point was that those in the crowd who were considering becoming disciples of his should count the cost before they embarked on a life of discipleship. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower or a barn or probably in the rural context, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when his later foundation is not able to finish, all those who see it will uh, begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Here's the point of this parable. A person who begins following Jesus and then stops following only makes a fool of themselves. The next parable makes essentially the same point. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other king is a far way off, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So the cost of failure in this parable is not just embarrassment, but personal destruction. It's very important to assess the strength of your enemy correctly. Jesus was not encouraging people to stop following him because they feared they could not withstand temptations. He wanted them to follow him, but intelligently, not naively. Discipleship to Jesus is not an invitation to a Sunday school picnic. It's an invitation to spiritual warfare. And Jesus then applies these two parables. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That's a pretty radical statement right there, isn't it? Obviously, the 12 had not given away everything they owned, but they had adopted a lifestyle conducive to fulfilling their mission that involved relatively few possessions. And we should probably then understand Jesus' command as requiring a willingness on our behalf to part with possessions as necessary to follow Jesus faithfully. We should not begin an, a, a venture without the assurance of sufficient resources to finish it. And similarly, we should not begin following Jesus without being willing to sacrifice anything to complete that project successfully either. So are you prepared and willing to sacrifice whatever is necessary to follow Jesus as a disciple? That's the question that Jesus is asking of us. Are you willing to give up your time to be a disciple of Jesus? To come out of an evening spent and attend a small group, to get up early on a Sunday, serve on a team, to go to a, a men's breakfast? Do you know they start at 8am? 
that's pretty early for a Saturday for some people. Um, but there's all those sorts of things that might require sacrifice on our behalf to follow Jesus. You know, sometimes I, I, would, I want to commend our entire youth team to you who give up their Friday nights to serve our youth. Sometimes, let me tell you, it's the last thing you want to do at 7 p.m. on a Friday night. But what a blessing it is. It, oh, I always feel so energised uh, when there's a whole bunch of young people here on a Friday night that we get to share the hope of Jesus with, um, even though sometimes after a big week, 7 p.m. on a Friday is the last thing you want to do. Right? I'm being honest, but I still love it. Are you willing to give up what Christ calls you to, to follow Him as a disciple? I often talk about the three T's, time, talent, treasure. Are you willing to give those to follow Jesus, to serve Him, to worship Him as a disciple? So today we've learned, uh, we've heard the call of Christ to humility. That was our first lesson today. Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, was once asked to name the most difficult instrument to play. And without hesitation, he replied, the second fiddle. He said, I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's the problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. Are you humble enough to play second fiddle? Humble enough to let others shine around you, supporting them and making a beautiful harmony. We've also seen the different excuses that people make to prevent them, which prevent them from entering the kingdom. Excuses of property, possessions and pleasure. What excuses do you make instead of accepting the invitation of Jesus to follow him as a disciple? Oh, I'm too busy. Oh, I've got to do this with family. Oh, I can't get up early. Oh, like, what excuses do we make that stop us from following him as a disciple? And we also looked at the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. Are you willing to give up whatever it is that he calls you to so that you can follow him as a disciple unhindered? Are you prepared to sacrifice your own comfort and your own priorities for God's priorities. May I suggest something for each of us? Let us take a moment of silence and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, to bring conviction of one change that He wants us to make in our priorities to bring them into alignment with His as disciples. Holy Spirit, we ask that you reveal that to us now. Reveal to us the areas where our personal priorities are preventing or sidetracking us from worshipping Jesus or serving Jesus or becoming more like Jesus. Reveal to us one change that we can make, Lord, we ask, to surrender the things that are we are holding on to that are stopping us from being your disciples.
Salt is good, but what if salt has lost its taste? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use for either soil or for manure pile. It is thrown away. Let us hear Jesus today. Lord, may we continue to be salty. May we continue to live our allegiance to Jesus in every aspect of our lives. May our saltiness preserve our faith and dependence on you. May it flavor our lives with the gospel and the hope of Jesus. Like salt that brings flavor to a whole meal, may our commitment to be your disciples impact every fiber of our being and every thought of our mind and every priority of our will. So Holy Spirit, please speak to us now. Reveal to us the areas of our personal priorities that are preventing us or sidetracking us from worshipping Jesus or serving Jesus or becoming more like Jesus. Reveal to us that change that you want us to make. Reveal to us that thing that is holding us back. And Lord, I, we, we surrender that to you right now. Lord, we surrender that wholeheartedly to you. Lord, we declare right now that we are all in for Jesus. We're going to hold nothing back. I have decided to follow Jesus and hold nothing back. Amen.